Welcome to Care Act Conversations with Cascada. In this podcast, we provide advice and insight on adult social care law. We talk through what should happen and what goes wrong when people need care and support and how you can uphold your rights. Cascada is an online specialist advice charity. Our mission is to help people get their full legal rights to care and support services and to support defensible decision-making by the public sector. Visit our website, cascadr.org.uk and support our work by using the big yellow button to donate or go straight to cascada.org.uk forward slash donate. Hello, everybody. It's Belinda Schwer, uh, the ex-CEO of Cascada, but still keen to be involved in Cascada's Conversations, our podcasts about all matters related to the CARE Act. And I'm Jerry Nasowska. I'm a social worker and uh, welcome back to CARE Act Conversations with Cascada. In this episode, we are delving into or even charging into the topic of social services charging. Um, We're calling it charging challenges because the cost of care is one of the areas that people get most worried about and causes the most confusion. It is both personally and politically tricky. We're not going to be talking about what in an ideal world charging should look like or whether it should even exist. We are going to stick to what in this world, specifically England, it actually looks like through the prism of the legal framework currently in place. It's essential that you understand the financial implications and accountabilities when you're planning, arranging or receiving adult social care. The fact that some people can qualify for completely free care, regardless of their assets, um, is another topic altogether. That's NHS continuing health care. Today, we're just considering the law around social care services that the local authority has a duty to provide. And we always recommend that it's worth knowing where to look for the law the regulations and the guidance, as well as the CARE Act. That's where you can get information yourself. And the law that you need is in sections 14 to 17 of the CARE Act 2014. Then there's the care and support charging and assessment of resources regulations in 2014. And the care and support guidance online has a whole chapter, chapter eight on charging. It's quite accessible, but you have to be careful because the legal provisions are very specific. Um, So some of the accuracy can get a little bit confused in plain English. And that also has in that guidance an annex A on choice and additional payments, top ups. And we've already done a podcast on top ups. Annex B, which is about how capital is treated and annex C, which is about how income is treated. There's also Annex E, which is about deprivation of assets, which we won't go into particularly today. Um, And Annex D, which is about debt recovery. And again, we're not going to go into that in this podcast. So a quick reminder that there are elements of adult social care that you do not have to pay for. Assessment, including financial assessment, care planning and commissioning the actual services. At least that's usual. Your wealth or your lack of it doesn't affect the duty to provide assessment and care planning. The arrangement function of commissioning 
um, can be affected by wealth unless you lack mental capacity and have nobody authorised to manage your money for you or otherwise willing to pay to sort your situation out for you. Services that are put into a formal Section 117 aftercare um, agreement under the Mental Health Act aren't chargeable, but we're also not going to look at that today. And generally, local authorities are not allowed to charge for minor adaptations or equipment, and that's things under 1,000. They don't charge for intermediate care or reablement for up to about six weeks. And we talked about those things when we were doing our hospital discharge podcast. So just to re-emphasise, we're talking about charging for other services, the ones that aren't free, to meet eligible needs under the Care Act 2014. And that's services either to adults or to carers. Care, the meeting of one's care and support needs, that is, and the funding of it, is an enforceable legal right under the Care Act if you are firstly eligible according to eligibility regulations and not seeking care home care because that is wealth sensitive. However, regardless of your assets, you must still be offered assessment and an eligibility decision all the same before you are then supported to go off and spend your own money. Social care is chargeable by reference to your means, that's your means only, and regulations guidance out the counting up of your means and the rules for that. It's important to grasp, and it took me many years to do that myself, that it is not a proportion of the cost of care that you're receiving that you are assessed to pay. It's the whole amount that can lawfully be counted, except that which councils are obliged to let one keep for living off of, or anything that one can persuade the council to disregard by reference to one's personal circumstances. These rights to pay no more than the rules allow are enforceable by way of public law challenge and principles using that body of law that we love, the body of law that's based on rationality, fairness, legality, and so far as it is part of the UK's legal framework, other constraints found in human rights law and discrimination law. Sometimes both those areas of principle, in fact, can be relevant to charging. A personal budget in care law is the sum of money that will cover the meeting of all of the person's eligible needs that have triggered a duty, and sometimes those which have been uh, decided uh, under a power to add in. Any non-eligible needs, wants, and any eligible needs in respect of which um, uh, a duty uh, is, is found that the council thinks that it should meet. The budget, that key figure, is made up of the charge after financial assessment that the individual can be made liable to pay and the council's amount of the shortfall between that and the cost of meeting the need is then added in and the two sums together add up to the personal budget. In commissioned packages where the council does the contracting, it pays the whole fee out, of course, to the buyer and invoices the client for the taking the hit on the difference if the person has been assessed to pay nothing or only a low amount. And of course, taking a bigger hit if the person doesn't even pay what they've been assessed to pay first place. In contrast, in direct payment arrangements where the person is given money, the council will pay the sum due for the package net of the charges due 
into the bank account or onto a card so that the person themselves has to put their hand into their own pocket or a bank account in order to meet the shortfall for the cost of the full package. So how does the council work out what the person is liable to pay? Well, that's set out in the charging guidance. The overarching principle is that people should only be required to pay what they can afford. People will be entitled to financial support based on a means test and some will be entitled to free care. A person with assets above the upper capital limit is able to be charged the full cost of their care in a care home or for home care and other services at home. A person with assets between the capital limits will pay what they can afford from their income, plus a means tested contribution from their countable assets. And a person with assets below the lower capital limit will pay only what they can afford from their actual income. So there's going to be a difference depending on how much money you've got as to what you pay. Um, but there's a threshold at the top, the upper capital limit above which everyone, however much they've got, pays the full amount, the full cost of their care. The power to make a charge for meeting a carer's needs for support by providing a service of care or support to the adult needing the care is not allowed to be exercised so as to charge the carer. A general rule is that the charge may cover only the cost that the local authority incurs in meeting the needs, not ever more than the cost. If they've been decided, if they've decided, for example, to subsidise everyone's care, by choosing to charge up to a discretionary maximum percentage of anyone's accessible income open to charge or a local policy based on a maximum chargeable amount, they can still never lawfully charge more than the cost of the service an actual person receives under their actual care plan. There's an underlying discretion. There's no obligation to charge at all, in fact. But as with any power to do anything, public law principles mean that deciding one way or the other involves being fair and taking all relevant considerations into account. References to affordability and what it's reasonably practical for a person to pay would ideally mean that there'd be an appeal system or at least internal review. But there isn't any formal provision for either of those. So the discretion that the council has and their decision about what to charge is valid unless or until challenged. So you either have to put up with the charges or fight them. All justifications for not paying, whether to do with the maths, the calculation about what you should pay or the fact that something should be disregarded or that you believe something should be disregarded or that the principles of fairness and affordability, for example, haven't been followed, need to be made really clear and asserted with evidence. So we advise if you're going to be charged for social care that you read the guidance, ask questions before anything is agreed, um, seek advice um, if you think that things aren't being done properly and make a complaint early if it feels like things are going on the wrong track. The idea in the guidance of keeping affordability in mind as a general principle, as far as local authorities are concerned, relates to people with already difficult lives being assured of having sufficient money left to live on. But local authorities are cunningly and effectively empowered to say that applying the charging framework will, in and of itself, lead to a charge that is no more than is affordable. 
So this is a bit of a disingenuous and circular aspect of the guidance. Uh, the concept of doing a proper assessment and coming to a lawful charge includes allowing for a very low personal expenses allowance for residents of care homes, um, also some discretion to treat temporary residents in a care home more generously than others because they will, of course, have other obligations with, with regard to rent or household expenses that are ongoing. They haven't given up living at home. And then also the concept uh, for people having care at home of a minimum income level needed to live on. The general proposition is that a local authority may not make a charge if the income of the adult concerned would, after deduction of the amount of the charge, fall below such amount as is specified um, in uh, guidance and in the CARE Act. The purpose of this minimum income guarantee is obviously to promote independence and social inclusion for people with disabilities and chronic illness. It's supposed to ensure that people have got sufficient funds to meet their basic needs, such as food, utilities, insurance, etc. Importantly, this minimum income guarantee is set after any housing costs, such as rent and council tax, of course, net of any benefits provided to support those costs, and after any disability-related expenditure have been deducted. So, for example, a council tenant will have water rates as part of their tenancy service charge, whilst a private or housing association tenant will not. Disability-related expenditure is covered in the regulations, and it says that when assessing ability to pay, the local authority has a duty to ignore DRE if it is choosing in its discretion to count in specified disability benefits such as personal independence payment or uh, DLA. Unfortunately, local authorities are then given the decision-making role in relation to what specifically counts or doesn't count as DRE for uh, particular individuals. They get some help from the regulations. The regulations contain a provision defining DRE, but not exhaustively. The regulation says that DRE includes community alarm systems, privately arranged care and specialist items. And the term includes means to a legal framework expert that the concept is not supposed to be limited to those items only. On the other hand, rules of statutory interpretation suggests that DRE would be limited by a court to at least those types of items. The regulations use the concept of the expenditure being required as well, as well as being related to disability, being required. And um, the guidance over the years has waxed and waned and ebbed and flowed with regard to just how absolutely essential something needs to be before it should be disregarded from the person's means under this duty. We know that there are those councils who take the view that the person must have virtually no choice but to spend the money in the matter without seemingly factoring in the council's own well-being promotion duties, which include social and economic well-being. On the other hand, there are those councils who are less strict and whose finance officers look merely for something being important as long as it is 
at least related rationally to the person's disability or condition, as opposed to being a mere want or, dare I say it, a whim. In order to work out how much to charge, the council has got to carry out a financial assessment. And one of the warning signs for people that things are going a bit wrong with charging is if you don't know whether you've had a financial assessment or not, but you are receiving care. We come across people quite often who get an invoice for something that they didn't understand the charges for or even the fact that they would be charged. And before putting something in place, councils should at least know the rough shape of any charging, even if there has not been time to get the financial assessment done. And of course, that information should be shared. The financial assessment should happen And that will involve a coherent exploration of the person's finances, and it should lead to some clear written information. The ombudsman will be concerned if a council is charging without making it crystal clear what they're charging for. The Care Act says that where a local authority thinks that if it were to meet an adult's or a carer's needs for care and support, it would charge the person for meeting at least some of those needs, then it must assess the level of the person's financial resources and identify the amount of any which they would be likely to be able to pay towards the cost of meeting the needs for care and support. Going through the financial assessment process is the only way to do that. Conversation uh, or a quick chat about whether the person wants to disclose whether they've got these assets or not, it will not do. Unless it is one of those situations where light-touch financial assessment is allowed and the person agrees or their authorised representative agrees. It's worth noting that the council only has the power to assess the person themselves not their partner, nor their spouse, nor their parents, and nor anybody else. Unless, in the case of partners, there is an agreement for a reason that would logically justify a lower charge for the person who's going to be receiving the services. An example is, if that person is the richer of the two, and they have long been subsidising the other's notional half of the joint living expenses, and they still intend and need to do so. Uh, That's needed to take account of the fact that that's how plenty of couples still organise their finances. A local authority must regularly reassess this person's ability to meet the cost of any charges to take account of any changes to their resources. And it's supposed to be on an annual basis, but it may vary according to individual circumstances. It obviously should take place if there's a change in circumstance or at the request of the person. Because here's something that is quite hard to remember. The money that is being assessed remains absolutely the money of that person. They are still able to decide what to spend it on as long as it isn't deliberate deprivation of assets to avoid paying for care. So putting this in in another way, it means that an individual can ultimately, if pushed, make a sensible decision as to whom it is better to be in debt to. Is it better to owe money to the local authority for social care that can't be stopped just because there is a debt? 
or is it better to be in debt to a private sector organization that can sue you easily and send in bailiffs? Interesting question that I shall just leave hanging there for the edification of people who are listening. So Belinda just mentioned the concept of a light touch financial assessment, and that can happen in some circumstances. So the guidance says that where the local authority charges a small or nominal amount for a particular specific service, which the person's clearly able to pay um, with you know, the, the consequence that they'd have the relevant minimum income left and carrying out a full financial assessment would be disproportionate, then a light touch assessment can happen. Similarly, where a person has significant financial resources and doesn't want to undergo a full financial assessment, um, maybe because they just like the privacy around their own financial situation, but does want to access local authority support in meeting their needs, they can um, consent to being assessed as being above the threshold. The local authority may accept other evidence in lieu of carrying out the financial assessments. Um, the person say so, for example, um, if they're capacitated and conclude that the person has financial resources above the upper limit and simply impose the charges. Again, when an individual is getting benefits, um, which can only be received if you have assets below the financial threshold, it's reasonable for the local authority to conclude that um, that light touch assessment would be would be valuable in that situ situation. Um, but since most charging also needs to take into account tariff income, the council would probably still need to explore some more. A local authority is also to be treated as having carried out a financial assessment in an adult's case and being satisfied on their basis that the adult's financial resources exceed the financial limit where the adult has refused a financial assessment or the authority has been unable to carry out a full financial assessment because of the adult's refusal to cooperate with the assessment. And the local authority nevertheless decides to meet some or all of the adult's needs for care and support or for support. So receiving care and support and refusing a financial assessment can result in higher charges. There's no justification in the Care Act for thinking that the duty to meet needs depends on the person's agreement to pay charges or their willing acceptance of a financial assessment. The needs must be met regardless. The light touch provisions are ways in which a council can get to the point of deciding how much to charge. So to call them light touch is a bit of a misnomer, but that is what they're referred to. Um, where a person does not agree to the charges that they have been assessed as being able to afford under a light touch route, a full financial assessment may be needed because the council will need a firm footing on which to levy the charge in the absence of consent. The Care Act does give them the right to levy charges, but only if those charges are properly determined. So that makes us think about what about the financial assessment rules for a mentally incapacitated adult? At the time when the needs are being assessed, the council needs to establish whether the person has got capacity to take part in the assessment at all. That's because first and foremost, they may be owed advocacy rights and secondly, because although there's no need to get someone's consent to being assessed, there is a right to refuse an assessment altogether with capacity. We're talking there about the needs assessment, not the financial assessment. 
So, of course, it's tempting for officers in a council to assume that an individual's relatives can provide information about them, not just about their needs, but about their finances. Finance officers also like to think that relatives can take financial decisions or act on behalf of their relatives without necessarily having legal authority. Because lots of us these days do help people who are deteriorating through physically supporting them to access their logon, for instance, onto online banking or taking their card to the ATM machine. And whilst one starts to do that with the person's consent and knowledge, there may come a point where that consent and knowledge effectively evaporates. So local authorities are on sticky territory here. Disclosure of the state person's finances is one thing in terms of best interests. But involvement in the management of the actual money when a person's capacity has evaporated is another thing altogether. If the individual lacks capacity, then trying to act as if one had authority to spend their money is likely to be unlawful or, at the very least, ineffective. At worst, it could be regarded as a safeguarding uh, problem. Proper steps need to be taken under the Mental Capacity Act to obtain authority. A person who lacks capacity to understand the consequences uh, of their decisions, and that consequence in particular, cannot be regarded as having failed to cooperate with financial assessment. And on that footing, the light touch assessment route does not arise. Incapacitated people may have a person authorised to do disclosure of their means to the council, such as lasting power of attorney or deputyship. But if not, the council advises that the council can, does have the power to organise deputyship in its own names. In practice, councils everywhere tend to depend on people's relatives to make best interest decisions to share the information in the first place on the basis that the person's got a good excuse in law for so doing. It's going to help the person not be charged full cost. But if a person has no willing relative to disclose their financial state of affairs, our view is that they cannot be charged at all legally without some other justification and that's why councils ultimately need to continue to apply for deputyship um, if they can get it at a cost-effective rate or even appointeeship. People who lack capacity to give consent to the financial assessment and who do not have anyone with authority to be involved in their affairs may require the formal appointment by the court, the OPG and the Court of Protection of a Property and Affairs Deputy. Family members can apply for this or the local authority can apply. It's usually in the name of the Director of Social Services if there is literally no family involved or willing. There is absolutely no obligation for a family member to take deputyship. Councils need to persuade families to step up if they don't want to take on that role themselves. 
While it takes weeks or even months to sort out financial and property deputyship, it then enables the person appointed to access information, maybe to which they didn't have access informally. In other words, bank accounts and financial affairs of some greater complexity. A person with dementia should not be forced to undertake a financial assessment under threat of being charged full cost, nor sign documents that they can no longer understand. They should not be punished for any incomplete information that is elicited from them. The local authority should be working with an EPA, an LPA, that is a lasting power of attorney holder, or a deputy instead. Local authorities often try to strong arm appointees into disclosing the details of privately held bank accounts. And of course, if you are somebody's appointee, you only have DWP authority to manage that which is in the benefit account. So an appointee should be trenchant and robust in telling local authorities why the full details cannot be disclosed. Having said that, in the real world, we know that the system would grind to a halt if people were not financially assessed based on relatives' disclosure, authorised or otherwise, and in fact, uh, on their actions. Clients would either be charged full cost whilst waiting for someone to take deputyship, or else never be regarded as not having someone to do it for them in the loosest sense of the word, so that local authorities would not then have to step up. So although we're making legal comments about the legal framework, we understand that this is a field in which practice is very different indeed, and perhaps necessarily so, while social services councils are so underfunded. The local government and social care ombudsman does write a lot of reports about charging issues um, and issues that arise. And there's some quite common themes in those, uh, including inadequate financial assessments, uh, for example, not properly considering disability related expenditure, untimely assessments. So that might be not doing an assessment for a long time after services start or not reassessing charges when someone's assets fall below the threshold or when circumstances change. Not explaining care charges. Um, there's an example uh, of a council who charged someone for five months for one to one care without seeking consent from the person who actually had a lasting power of attorney about the cost. Uh, so the person was was paying, but they didn't have capacity to agree to that. And the person who actually was authorised to um, determine whether somebody should receive that care and, and pay for it um, had never been told about it. Another council started charging after a period of reablement without putting this in writing. This is particularly likely where hospital discharge is arranged out of the hospital, maybe without any reference to the local authority and maybe by people who don't have training in the Care Act because they work for the NHS. Um, and the person then um, receives their reablement and then social care kicks in. But there's never been that discussion about the implications. Again, we looked at that to some extent in the hospital discharge podcast. So do take a look at that. Not giving notice about charging is another problem um, that comes up about changing um, policy. So you might have something in place that the person's going along with um, and then the charging policy changes and the person's not notified. So, for example, Nottingham was found at fault for not giving six weeks notice about a significant change. Actual court cases, uh, including 
or involving unlawful charges or processes have included a case about the policy being a breach of someone's Article 1 First Protocol rights in conjunction with Article 14 of the Human Rights Convention on the basis that a charging policy meant that the most severely disabled people were paying a disproportionately large percentage of their benefits compared to less severely disabled people by reference to their benefits status. Another case has involved the question of whether people can expect a housing costs disregard for lodging and board when accommodated by their parents. Um, there's another one that involved the question of costs of a holiday in the context of the cost of care and other costs related to getting there and the accommodation, for example. And yet another case has considered whether it's lawful or not to count someone's nighttime disability living allowance component when the person has nighttime needs that are not being met by the council. So there's a lot of complexity um, across this and the Ombudsman tends to pick up on issues of communication um, and discussion and decision making within that complexity. As we have said, money is something that causes a lot of anxiety and frustration. So our advice will always continue to be read the guidance, ask questions, seek advice and query things early if you think that they're going wrong. For instance, with a disability related expenditure disregard, it's very common for local authorities to offer a standard amount because that means that there's less work to be done for both you and them. However, if uh, you have got DRE that is above the standard amount, asking for a review of it will never be refused. Local authorities have got duties to disregard the DRE after all. You need to remember that you're allowed to wait to be sued for a charging debt before you get the chance to raise the public law point of illegality, for instance, irrationality, unfairness in due process, or even a breach of human rights as a defence in the county court. So that would be a defence not only to your own case, but it would be heard in open court, in the ordinary county court, and that would inevitably mean that others could rely on the judgment, for instance, that the policy or the policy change was unlawful. So that's a powerful strength to remember when you're bearing in mind that there are strategic decisions to be made about what to do if you are or your loved one is sued all the way to a debt. Annex D in the guidance contains a whole set of things that local authorities should consider and do and offer before they actually decide to sue people for social care charging debt. And one factor that people often forget is if they have severe learning disabilities or dementia, they cannot be sued in the courts of this country on a money judgment without having a litigation friend in place. Nobody else has an obligation to be that litigation friend. The official solicitor will not offer to act for people in ordinary uh, court cases about social care charging debts. So effectively, a local authority needs to pay for a litigation friend to be in place before they can even sue somebody lacking in capacity for debt. And that should never be forgotten. We hope you enjoyed Care Act Conversations with Cascada. 
If you or someone you know needs expert advice on a social care legal problem, please visit our website, cascada.org.uk, to find out what help we could offer. Please donate to our work via the big yellow button on our website or at cascada.org.uk forward slash donate. Thank you for listening.